You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. While He was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. And then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed And he went and hanged himself. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. It's so good to see you. It's good to be back. Last week, you got to hear from one of my dearest friends in the world, Pastor Jonah Sage. And he shared, and I wanted to share for those of you who weren't here, my mom has uh, been fighting for her life over the last month. She's been in ICU now for four weeks. And she's going to be there for a little while longer, at least. And so I want to say thank you for the grace and space to go up and be with her. She's in Cincinnati. My dad passed away years ago, so it's just my brother and I. It's the only family she has. Thank you for your grace in that. And I also thank you for your prayers. And I want to ask you guys to continue to pray for her. Her name's Jennifer. Pray for us. Pray for her physical health and her spiritual health. Um, Thanks so much. Before we jump into this text, let's pray together and ask God to give us eyes and ears to receive what he has for us here. Father, we know that you are a gracious God. You're merciful. You're compassionate. You're you're abounding in love. You extend forgiveness to generations. God, we know that you, you are not against us. You are for us. You loved us enough to send your son into the world, not to condemn us, but to save us. And Father, I think it's so hard for so many of us to believe that day in and day out, to believe that you 
are for us and you want the best for us and you want us to flourish. You want us to experience life and joy and hope. But that's who you are. And Lord, there are so many things. There's so many, there's, there's sin, there's brokenness, there's sin in our lives and brokenness in our lives. And then there's the sin and brokenness in this world. And it, it gets really hard to see through it. It's almost like a fog that keeps us from seeing reality as it really is and seeing you as you truly are. And so I pray as we come to your word this morning, this challenging passage, I pray that we might see the beauty and the hope and the wonder in it. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen. A few years back around Christmas, um, I guess I should set this up a little bit. I love Christmas. There's nothing better than being a dad of five kids, little kids around Christmas time. It's just the absolute best. And I've never read the book or taken the test, but I could tell you if I did the love languages test, it, my love language would be gift giving. And so I have a propensity, my wife will testify to this fact. She's here today. Uh, I have a propensity to buy too many presents and probably too nice of presents to give, like to give to a five-year-old, but it doesn't matter. It's not really for them. It's more for me anyway. Uh, and so about four or five years ago, uh, it was the 20th anniversary of Toy Story. And I was at a store and they had these 20th anniversary Buzz Lightyears and, and Woody's. And these things were premium. I mean, they're not the little ones that kind of make, these things were giant, well-made, well-crafted, all the lights, everything. And so I got them, one for each of my boys, and they weren't as excited as I would expect them to be, but uh, I've learned to not be disappointed by their response. Anyway, a couple of months goes by, and I notice Woody's still around the house, but I haven't seen Buzz for quite a while. And... So this is, I'm going to tell you the story as best I know it, um, because I'm piecing it together from eyewitness testimony. But one day, they were outside, and they wanted to see if Buzz could fly. Um, and so they took this very expensive Buzz Lightyear, but poor Buzz didn't know he was just a toy. And so when he hit the pavement, he got all these cracks in him and pieces broke off of him. And then this is where it really gets confusing and cloudy. But, and if you know my boys, they're pretty calm, sweet kids, but some kind of Lord of the Flies energy entered them in that moment. And they ended up just utterly destroying Buzz Lightyear. I mean, just slamming him onto the concrete. By the time I found him, Buzz was done for. He was in a million pieces. And me, fearing that my sons were becoming Sid, if you're familiar with the movies... I sat down with them, you know, we need to follow up on what's happened here. I've got Buzz with wires hanging out of him and everything. And I saw a bit of fear in their eyes, like, oh, we're busted. And I'm like, tell me what's happened. In the course of the conversation, you know, after we, we confronted the, those destructive tendencies, you know, they're like, well, dad, can you fix them? I'm like, no, you can't fix them. All of the super of the world... Well, King's horses and men can't put Buzz back together again. And, and I, I'll never forget this look on their face, this real sense of sadness and loss, like that, that it's done, it's gone. That toy, toy's going in the trash, and there's not another one coming. That sense of despair. 
that every one of us has felt before when we've done something that you can't undo. That's part of the human condition. We, we all know that cocktail of emotions of fear and anxiety and sadness, shame that comes when you, you get yourself into a mess that you can't get yourself out of. And so it could be that a friend shared a secret with you and you betrayed their confidence and shared it with someone else. And once that cat got out of the bag, it wasn't getting back in. It could be something that you've said or done to your children in anger, not just the typical parent-child relationship, but something very, very hurtful that you said. That you can ask for forgiveness, you can repent for, but you know the relationship, they're not going to forget those words. It could be something in your marriage. You broke your vows. You crossed a line. And you knew when you crossed the line that You can come back and there can be healing, but things change after that. Or it could be something that you did years ago and that you've done a pretty good job of keeping down, but sometimes it still comes up and you get that feeling, that pit in your stomach. We've all found ourselves in this place before. And what do you do when that happens? Where do you go when you feel helpless? Where do you go when you feel that sense of despair? Well, the section of Matthew we're in today, it's traditionally referred to as the trial of Jesus. And it is the trial of Jesus, but really everyone's on trial in this passage. Caiaphas, the high priest, is on trial. The Sanhedrin, the religious leadership. Pilate is put on trial. And even Peter and Judas And it's those two that I want to focus on this morning, because both of them in this passage, they do something that cannot be undone. Both of them deny Jesus. Both of them betray Jesus on the night of his death. And both are overcome with grief and shame and a sense of despair. And yet while this night marks the end of Judas's story, he hangs himself. We know it's just one chapter. It's a sad chapter, but it's only one chapter in Peter's story. And Peter will actually go on from this moment, this lowest of lows, and he will emerge from this a different man, a better man, and he will be the leader of the church. And so how? They both fail Jesus miserably, and one ends in death, and the other actually, it leads to him becoming the leader of the church. What happened? They responded differently. And so I want to look at this text, look at what it teaches us about Peter and then Judas, and then we're going to talk about it. But to set things up, as Jesus was going to the Garden of Gethsemane, he told his disciples, because Jesus knew what was coming, he said, you will all fall away because of me this night. And Peter, brash, overconfident Peter, as always, answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die, I will not deny you. And all the other disciples said the same. Jesus goes into the garden to pray. Peter can't even stay awake. When Jesus finishes praying, Judas appears 
with a lynch mob. He betrays Jesus with a kiss. They arrest Jesus and they, they take him to the palace of the high priest. Matthew tells us, those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. This is the middle of the night. This is a bogus trial that's gonna happen. But Matthew wants to point out that Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside, he sat down with the guards to see the end. So Peter's still there with Jesus. He's at a distance. He's in the courtyard. He's able to hear and maybe he's able to see this bogus trial that's going on against Jesus. And of course, the court finds him guilty of blasphemy. And Matthew tells us in verse 67 that after that, they spit in his face and they struck him and some slapped him saying, <coughs> prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now, Peter's watching all of this go down, hearing it. And he's probably got these emotions, like, should I step in? Should I step up? Should I try to intervene? There's a whole crowd. I, I can't do anything. He sees Jesus being spit upon and mocked. And while he's watching this, Matthew tells us that a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. And this was the, the, the point of decision for Peter. You were with him. But he denied it before them all, the guards, everyone, saying, I don't know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it, but this time with an oath. I swear, I don't know the man. First denial, I don't know what you're talking about. Second denial, I don't know him, and I swear. And then Matthew continues, after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself. May God strike me down. I swear I do not know the man. Matthew tells us immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and that's very important. He went out, and then he wept bitterly. So these denials, there's a, an escalation to each of them. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. May God strike me dead if I'm lying. I've never known that man. But there's also physically, Peter is retreating out of the palace. He's moving towards the entrance. And at the third denial, Matthew tells us he went out. So it wasn't like he heard the rooster crow and thought, oh no. I mean, he might've thought it, but he didn't break down in tears. He got out of there. He saved his skin. And then once he was a safe distance away, he wept. And he wept bitterly. Now, one of the challenges for us is we know this story and we know it's not the end of the story, but if you can set it aside and just put yourself in Peter's shoes on that night, imagine what he must have been feeling. I mean, he doesn't know, I mean, even though Jesus has told him, Peter doesn't know Jesus is gonna rise from the grave. He doesn't know what the future holds. 
Just imagine in that moment, I'm with you to death. Two hours later, I swear to God, I've never seen that man before in my life. Think of the shame and the despair, the embarrassment, the hopelessness. This is the saddest moment of Peter's life. And I just wonder that night lying in bed, Peter, in the comfort of his own home, while Jesus is in jail, just thinking, how do you come back from a failure that big? How do you get up after so great a fall? We'll come back to Peter. I want to move to Judas, though. We know Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But after his arrest, something happened, Matthew tells us. Verses 3 and 4, he says, When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. Something happened in Judas when he saw Jesus, this bogus trial, they condemn him to death. He changed his mind, and I want to hit pause there for a second. Changed his mind, it's a word that means something like being seized with remorse, to have regrets, to wish you could undo something you've done. And so Peter or Judas sees, Jesus condemned, he's seized with remorse. He wants to undo what he's done, and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And the chief priests and the elders were horrible pastors because they didn't say, they didn't offer a word of hope or forgiveness. Instead, they said, what is that to us? It's your problem, not ours. See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. You know, it's really easy for us to vilify Judas, to view him as two-dimensional, just a all bad guy, but when you actually look at this text, you see that he is very much just like you and me. He committed a sin, he made a horrible decision, and then he, when he realized that he set in motion some really awful things, he got the same pit in his stomach that we get in ours. And I think that his death is so heartbreaking. He was so hopeless. He saw no way out of the mess he got himself in. He saw no hope for recovery, no hope for forgiveness or restoration that he felt his only option was to take his own life. And that's what he did. You know, and there's, there's so much speculation over the years about Judas's eternal fate. Was this a deathbed confession? Let me tell you, Matthew is not writing this account to give us an insight into Judas's eternal destiny. And that's not his goal. Rather, by placing this account of Judas right next to Peter's failure, Matthew is intentionally contrasting the two men, their stories, and their responses. Both men denied Jesus. Both men betrayed Jesus. Both men are broken by their sin. And yet while Peter went out and wept bitterly, Judas went out and hanged himself. And the question is why? What's the difference between the two? And the difference is, while Judas had remorse, we know that Peter actually engaged in true biblical repentance. And I'll confess as a pastor, 
I struggle every time I teach or preach on this idea of repentance, not because it's, I'm afraid of it or afraid to talk, talk to you guys about it, but because when we hear the word repent, certain thoughts and images and stories emerge in our mind that are not the same thing. The, the words doesn't mean the same thing for us that it meant when Jesus used the word. The language has changed and the meaning has changed. And that's just kind of the nature of language. You know, let me take a quick 60-second sidebar. I One of my big pet peeves in life is how people completely misuse the word decimate. The word has its origins in the Roman military, and when Rome would conquer an enemy, they would line up all of the enemy's soldiers, and as a punishment, they don't want to kill them all. Those are able-bodied men who can help them continue to build Rome. They don't want to kill them all, so they would line them up, and they would kill one out of every ten. That would be them decimating the army. Deca, decimal, tenth. That's what the word means. Well, now we use that word to mean destroy, obliterate, annihilate, and it's completely lost its meaning. And we don't even have a word for decimate anymore. College, this really fired me up. I had too much time on my hand. I tried to start a save decimate campaign, painted on a water tower. <laughs> but no, where people were like, no, that's fine. We'll just, we'll just totally, who cares the etymology? Who cares the origin? We're just going to make it say something else. And that's the way it is. No, that's, that's, I guess that's fine with a word like decimate, but, but we can't do that with a word like repent. Because repentance is all throughout God's word, and repentance is that gets to the very heart of the Christian life. And so part of my job as your pastor is to continually say, no, 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 it's not that. Here's what it is. And part of our job as God's people is to not say, well, that's what it means in our world today, so that obviously is what it meant then, but instead to press in and say, what is real repentance in the Bible? And there are three things this passage teaches us about true repentance. Number one, true repentance is ultimately a matter of the heart. You know what I, I think is really interesting in this passage is if you look at what Judas does, it seems like he does everything right. He feels bad for what he's done. He feels remorse. He confesses his sin to the religious leaders. And then he tries to make restitution for the wrong he committed. I mean, as a parent, that's what I try to teach my kids. Like, here's how you come back from things. You got to own it. You got to know the pain it's caused and apologize. And then you try to make it right. You do the best you can to make it right. Judas does all of those things. And then he still ends up taking his own life. Why? Well, Judas, he got... Almost, almost everything right, except the most important thing. Judas, he turned from his sin, but he never turned to Jesus. And at the heart of repentance, it's not just feeling bad. At the heart of repentance is a turning again to the Lord, turning your heart to God. Judas didn't do that. Instead, he turned his grief and his guilt and his shame and all of that, that wicked cocktail of emotions, and he just drank it down, focused on himself, and got to the place where that's all he could see and all he could feel was despair. 
In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul, and I think Paul's actually writing, he's referring to this instance, this account, he distinguishes between two things, between godly grief and worldly grief. And he says, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief produces death. And this is what we see in Judas. He's sorry, he tries to fix it. When he can't fix it, he takes his life in utter despair. See, that's what worldly sorrow does. That's what worldly grief does. That's that feeling sometimes maybe some of you have where you have blown it, you've done something wrong, and you just kind of collapse on yourself. And you feel so weighed down, struggle to talk to other people, honestly, you go into hiding because the worldly grief is just pulling you down. And if you give it enough rope, it will eventually hang you too. Godly sorrow is different. Godly sorrow, it's, it's a kind of brokenness, but it's the kind of brokenness that Jesus celebrates in the Beatitudes. It's a poverty of spirit. Godly sorrow shows up as a broken heart that longs for healing and for forgiveness. A despairing heart only thinks of what it can or can't do. A broken heart seeks to go to God and be washed clean, be healed, and be given a word of hope. And we know Peter had this kind of godly grief. You know why? Because a couple weeks after this, Jesus shows up, not even a couple weeks, I don't know exactly how long, but after the resurrection, Peter is out fishing, probably still kicking himself in his head of everything that he's done. Jesus is making fish tacos for breakfast on the shore, and he calls out to Peter, and what does Peter do? Does anyone remember? Like he just rips off like his tunic, and he dives in, and he swims as fast as he can to Jesus. He doesn't think, oh, I don't know what I should do. He's like, oh, there he is. And he had no fear. No fear, even though he denied, even though he'd betrayed. His heart, though, what he wanted more than anything was to be with Jesus. True repentance is always a matter of the heart. It's not ultimately about the sin. It's about our heart's orientation. Is it oriented towards Jesus or is it focused on our failings, our sins? Is that where we're living or are we actually turning from it to him? Number two, true repentance leads to life and joy. Most people don't think of, don't put repentance and joy or life in the same sentence, but that's exactly where we go wrong. Repentance always leads to life and repentance always leads to joy because true repentance always leads us to Jesus. And he's the source of life and joy. And the picture we're given in the New Testament, the hope we're given through the cross is that we can bring all of our stuff to him. Our brokenness, the mess, the pain, the shame we can't fix. When we get into that place of, I, I cannot unring this bell. I, I got myself in a mess I can't get myself out of. We can go to him with open hands and lay it before him. 
But I think oftentimes we don't live like that. I think oftentimes our repentance looks more like Judas's. And I would say what you call repentance doesn't ultimately result in a sense of relief and hope and joy. It's not true repentance. It's self-hatred or self-flagellation or any number of things. But if it doesn't end in joy, it's not repentance. And here's where we get to the real problem. The real problem is we know what the Bible says. We know that the Bible says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. We know that Paul says that God is for us. We know that God himself told Moses that he abounds in love and compassion and mercy and grace. And yet most of us, many of us, many of us, we live with this unshakable sense that at best God is disappointed with us and at worst he is repulsed by us, especially in our sin. Like in the abstract, yes, God is love. Me, personal, today, with my brokenness and my sin and me losing my temper here or saying something over here, I don't know. That's how our enemy keeps us paralyzed. That's how the enemy keeps the church immobilized. Way too many Christians, they just live at this place of shame and despair. And Jesus, Jesus says, no, you can come to me with it all. I mean, don't you think it's fascinating that in the gospels, prostitutes were drawn to Jesus? The most shameful profession in that day. And they saw Jesus and they didn't say, oh no, Jesus is here, let's get out. Instead, they ran to him because they knew that he came to forgive sinners. I think another thing that's fascinating is that Matthew, he just keeps including these stories of miserable failures on the part of the disciples. And I think he does it to encourage us. I mean, remember, Matthew's writing this a few decades after Jesus' ascension. Peter is now the head honcho. You know, everyone knows who Peter is, and he's writing this story. And the reason Matthew's writing his, his gospel is to disciple believers, to encourage them in the way of Jesus. And at the time Matthew was writing this, Nero was the emperor of Rome. He began to persecute Christians. Many Christians denounced Christ. Many denounced their fellow believers. They betrayed them to save their own skin. One commentator I was reading, he said, he believes Matthew includes this story here as a word of encouragement to those believers then that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of second chances. And that even in their betrayal, which was horrible and wrong, it didn't have to be final, and it didn't have to have the last word. True repentance is a matter of the heart. True repentance leads to life and joy. And true repentance, it always ends in beauty. Judas' story ends so ugly, but Peter's story is so beautiful. Within a few months, Peter's going to return to this city where his cowardice and shame was on full display. He's going to return to the place where he hit rock bottom 
And then he's gonna preach with boldness that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, and that there is no other name given under heaven whereby we can be saved but him. And he's gonna preach this sermon to the very men he was terrified of on that night. Peter, he's both stronger because of this failure and he's softer. His faith in Christ is stronger, but he's also, it's, it's changed him. It's softened him up. I mean, after a failure like that, gosh, I mean, Peter throughout the gospel, he's brash, he's boastful, he's overconfident. Sometimes he's cocky and prideful. Could you imagine if Peter actually did? I mean, this is the strange mystery of God. I'm doing a little speculation here. Could you imagine if Peter actually did stand with Jesus through his crucifixion and then went on to lead the church? He would have been absolutely insufferable. At least for people like me. I don't know about you. Maybe you've got it all together. But for broken people who struggle and who sin, who have weaknesses, Peter, oh my gosh. An unbroken Peter would have been an unbearable Peter. But this moment, this recovery, the restoration that Jesus gives him, changes him, softens him, made the gospel real to him. And it was a very real reminder for him that the gospel is not just for other people, it's for me. You know, some of the ancients say that as long as Peter lived, he could never hear a rooster crow without weeping. And this is, we're getting to some of the mystery of God's sovereignty and of the gospel. But, but this sad story, this sad event in Peter's life, it's actually the source of so much beauty made him a better man, it made him a deeper man, and God and his sovereignty uses our brokenness to actually make us better, wiser, kinder, more gracious. And the way we access that is through repentance. It's turning to him with it all, with the sin and everything. And we turn to him and we say, I've totally blown it once again. And Jesus can take those things and actually make us stronger. I mean, we see this, a parallel might be if you got in a, a fight with a good friend, and I mean just a nasty conflict, but then you actually work through it, you reconcile. Oftentimes your friendship's stronger and more beautiful on the other side of the conflict than if the conflict had never happened in the first place. Andrew Peterson, he has a song. It says, Don't you want, it's called, Don't You Want to Thank Someone? And there's this line. He says, maybe it's a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but rather to be broken and then redeemed by love. This last year has been hard on us all. You, you look at the polls, the trends, the interviews, you just talk to people. I think, generally speaking, we are less healthy now than we were a year ago, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. I think people have picked up bad habits, maybe, maybe habits they had before and then they, 
They got over them and then they picked them back up during the pandemic, maybe picked up brand new habits that are destructive. When we're stressed, we run to things instead of God that are not good for us. Some of you really need some help right now. And some of you are really, really struggling. I just want to say this passage is telling you it's okay to be broken. It's okay. And not just broken in some abstract way, not just broken in the past tense, broken today. It's okay for you to say, I am so depressed right now. Or I am overcome with anxiety. It's okay to say, I've been living a lie or I'm consumed by lust. Lust. I'm, I'm filled with bitterness. I mean, we are all broken. We envy those above us. We, we look down on those below us. We're self-absorbed, self-righteous, but at the same time, we can be filled with self-hatred. We are all broken. And this passage is saying, Jesus can handle that. But if we do not live under his goodness and the promise of the gospel, then we just try to hide the brokenness, which makes it worse. And Christians who, who try to hide their brokenness, they become so self-righteous and arrogant and demanding, and they put so much pressure on other Christians. And that's how churches, which should be these beautiful sanctuaries of grace, where people can come and be honest, just denounce whatever it is. Say, I need help. My marriage is falling apart. I'm an alcoholic. I have an anger problem. I have this addiction. When we lose sight of that, then the church becomes a place where we have it all together. You know, I was talking with my oldest daughter recently. I got her permission to share this. She's 12. She was at S2 and we were driving home and I kind of talked to her about pastor's kids and what it means to be a PK and explained to her that a lot of times pastor's kids feel this pressure to be perfect. And my wife and I, we've, you know, Luther once said humanity is like a drunk man on a horse. You fall off to the left, gets on, falls off to the right. So we, we've probably fallen off to the side of like, we're not going to put pressure on you at all. You want to wear PJs to church? Fine. We don't care. But we're talking about this. And I said, the reason we push so hard here because I don't want you to live with that pressure. I, I talked to someone after the first service who said I was that kid and it, it put kinks in my soul for 30 years. It took 30 years to work them out. That pressure of not being able to say I'm imperfect and I'm broken. And my daughter, she's brilliant. We're talking about this and she said, isn't the whole point of Christianity that we aren't perfect? Isn't the whole point of Christianity that we're sinful and Jesus came to die for our sins? I said, yeah, sweetheart, that's the whole point. And so if you're here and you are suffocating, if you're here and you feel like you are drowning, I want you to know Jesus Christ came to die for very real sinners like you and like me. And as we move to the table, that's what, what we do at the table. We're remembering Jesus Christ on this very night He sat with his disciples, knowing that they were going to deny and betray him, knowing that they were all going to fall away. He sat with them and he broke a loaf of bread and he said, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. 
He doesn't say, you wicked sinners, you, you failures. He calls them friends. And he takes the cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant, the cup of my blood poured out for you. And here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. I want you to regularly, when you gather, I want you to remember this meal that I'm having with you so that you will remember that I'm giving my life for you. So if you are here and you are a Christian, I encourage you to feast on the grace of this meal. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in communion, but you take part in Jesus Christ who gave his life to bring you healing and hope. And he invites you out of the darkness this morning into the light. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.